with me to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 3. If you are new among us and have only been here for a couple services, it is our normal pattern to settle into a book of Scripture and to preach through it altogether. We've recently finished preaching through 1 Peter. We will soon be returning to a longer study through a book, but in the in-between times, I thought it would be good for us to do a shorter study, to look primarily at the Gospel of John in chapter 3 and consider what the new birth is, what it means to be saved, what it means to be a Christian, how we can truly know what salvation is, and how we can be born again. The most fundamental question, the most foundational need that every single one of us has is the need to be right with God. After all, He is our only hope in life and death, right? And He is the creator of everyone and everything. And therefore, where we stand with God is at the heart of everything. It is the most foundational question. And my goal, as we look at John 3 and, and consider the new birth and what Jesus has to say, and today the testimony of John the Baptist, my goal is that in this, every one of us would pay careful attention to what we read and examine our own hearts as to where we stand with God, where we stand with the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21, we read about a conversation between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. And the content of that conversation was led by Jesus. In fact, it was dominated by Jesus. And it has to do with the need to be born again and what that means. So, as Jesus talked with Nicodemus, we learned about absolute sinfulness, what we've called total depravity, the absolute sinfulness and inability of mankind to save himself. And we learned also about the sovereignty of God in salvation, that though while we are, are hopeless in pursuing God on our own by nature, God has made a way of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. And he is not only an able Savior, he is not only a good Savior, He is a sufficient Savior. He is all we need. And so in this conversation, we learned about how sinful people can be saved from their sin and can be reconciled to the Holy God. By God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. We learned about the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ to save all who believe in Him and call upon His name. Today, as we continue in John chapter 3, we are going to be in verses 22 through 36. We're going to continue learning about the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the sovereign God and the sufficient Savior of all the world. But this time, it's not Jesus talking. It is John the Baptist. 
This is his testimony and his perspective on the matter. And we come to him now not because he is more authoritative than Christ, but because he was the forerunner of Christ. And what John says in this passage is the essence of the entire ministry that John was called to. He was sent to prepare the way for the Savior. And so John's testimony and John's perspective helps us to understand who Jesus is and what he was actually here to do. And the essence of John's message we find in John chapter 1, verse 29. When Jesus comes onto the scene, into the picture, John bears testimony. He points to Jesus and says what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now in our text for today, in chapter 3, verses 22 through, 26, or through 36, we find John still around, but his influence is declining. While Jesus' public influence is growing, and his ministry is taking prominence. Since Jesus is meant to be the focus of it all, when he comes onto the public scene, John the Baptist sort of fades into the background. And what we find in this text is an account of that transition. The transition from the ministry of John to the prominent ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in transitioning, this text also teaches us something about the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of those who follow him. And so in these verses, we see an emphasis both on the humility of Christ's servant and the greatness of Christ himself as the Savior. That's where we're going with this. Look at the text now and follow along as I read, starting in John 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon, near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, that's Jesus, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. 
for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The first section of this text, verses 22 through 24, and these verses give us the setting. They sort of set up the rest of the passage for us. These verses transition us from what Jesus has just said to what John is saying in this passage. And so verse 22 says, after this, that's an indefinite marker. We don't know how long it was between the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus and the events that are happening right here. But I don't imagine it was too long because this happened while John was still free. He had not yet been put into prison, as we read in verse 24. So we read after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. Those disciples include at least the five men who were mentioned in chapter 1. Andrew, John, Simon, Philip, and Nathaniel. Maybe there were more. We're not exactly sure, but it was at least those. Jesus' ministry is, is growing at this point. And there's a big contrast here between this group of people and the crowd that John tells us about in chapter 2. This is a small group of people. They leave town with Jesus. They travel to the Judean countryside, which is a rural area outside of Jerusalem. Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus was in Jerusalem. Sometime after that, they go out of the town. Jesus left town with his disciples, and we read, he remained there with them. He stayed with his disciples. This suggests that this was one of those many times throughout Jesus' life where they take a brief retreat into the wilderness for the purpose of rest and for the purpose of teaching. Jesus often did that for prayer, for physical rest, and to instruct his disciples in the ministry of his kingdom. He was preparing them. He was training them to carry on his ministry after he was gone. And now during this retreat, we read that Jesus was baptizing. That's a significant observation because it puts him in contrast or parallel with John the Baptist. Now, chapter 4, verse 2 tells us that Jesus was not the one actually baptizing, but that it was his disciples who were doing it. But it highlights the parallel nature of their ministries at this point, the overlap between John the Baptist and Jesus. That they're both baptizing, and that baptizing ministry was built on the preaching of repentance. So Mark tells us that when Jesus came on the scene, he was preaching, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Very similar to what John was, except John was pointing toward Jesus. So there's an overlap here. There's a transition happening. And that leads to verse 23, where we read, John also was baptizing. We're not exactly sure where Anon near Salim was, but most seem to agree that it was somewhere east of Judea, near the Jordan River, it was likely a relatively short distance from where Jesus was, so they're in somewhat close proximity. And of course, we see that there was water plentiful there, which is necessary for baptism. 
And as with Jesus' ministry, we read, so it was with John, people were coming and being baptized. So there's this overlap. Now, in verse 24, we find an unnecessary, or what seems to be an unnecessary little side comment. This happened before John was put into prison. And you would say, duh. Right? Uh, I mean, that's pretty obvious. If he's out here baptizing, he's not in prison. But what, what is the significance of a comment like that? Well, it's this. The other three Gospels that had already been written by this point indicate that when Jesus came on the scene, John left. Almost like there was no overlap. John is showing us there was a little bit of an overlap, and he's doing it to show us a particular lesson about ministry, about Jesus' ministry, and about the ministry of those who follow him. So that's what's going on here. That's the setting. That's where we find the events that are about to happen, starting in verse 25. And when we come to verse 25, we begin to notice the humility of the servant. The humility of the servant. So John is sort of the focal point here. Jesus is somewhat in the background because John's ministry is here, and we're watching how John is responding to Jesus. And when we do that, when we see John's response, we're learning a little something about the purpose of his ministry and the mindset that all who follow Christ must have. Okay, So here's this discussion. In verse 25, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. We don't know who the Jew was, but if John is consistent, the, the, the writer John, is, if he is consistent in the language that he uses, the Jew here is likely a religious leader, which means the discussion is probably about baptism and how it relates to the purification rituals that the Pharisees had already embraced. Okay, So there's some sort of legalism dispute going on here between John's disciples and this Jew. But that was really only the surface for John's disciples. Because we find out as we go on in the text that there's another issue that's sort of brewing under the surface for John's disciples. Whatever else it was that they had talked about with the Jew, it had to have included something about the ministry of Jesus and the success that he was seeing. Because John's disciples come away from it and they come back to John, and they seem to have some sort of confusion about Jesus, possibly even some envy. And we see that in what they say to John. So in verse 26, we read, And they came to John. They, when we read what they say, there's, there's a hint of some sort of frustration and confusion in their discussion, uh, coming from the discussion with the Jew and in what they say to John. So here's what they say, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. I don't want to read too much into it, but I do find it interesting that they don't say Jesus' name. Maybe there's something to that. If they're frustrated, they just recognize him as the one to whom John bore witness. And in a moment, John's going to sort of lovingly rebuke them for, for missing the point of Christ and of John's own ministry. But it seems at the moment that John's disciples are having a hard time figuring out what to do with Jesus. They're a little bit perplexed, maybe even frustrated, maybe even jealous. Because here's been John, who was here first baptizing, and now it seems that all 
people are going out toward Jesus. Look, he is baptizing and all are going out to him. That's, that's hyperbole, exaggeration for effect. Not everybody went out to Jesus, but it felt to them like everybody was. It shows a little bit of a frustration here. It shows, it hints that it's possible these disciples of John were beginning to see Jesus as a competitor to John and who were infringing on the success of their own ministry. And in seeing Jesus as a competitor to John, they're actually missing the whole point of John's ministry, aren't they? John's ministry calling was to make Jesus known. But in John's disciples, we see a problem. We see a bad understanding. We see a tendency that exists not just in those disciples, but in many who have called themselves Christians throughout all ages, don't we? The Apostle Paul dealt with this in 1 Corinthians when he rebukes the Corinthian church for dividing themselves according to the personality they follow. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. And then the super spiritual ones, <laughs> I follow Christ. There was this division, these factions that were forming within the church. And we see the same problem in many ways today, don't we? Have you seen them? In today's celebrity Christian culture, and make no mistake, it is a celebrity Christian culture in many ways. There are many leaders and Christian icons among God's people who often do more to build their own personal brand and ministry empire and to attract followers to themselves than they do to point people to Christ. We have seen, we have heard of some of these men and, and, and women and their ministries and, and the rise of these ministries and the, the catastrophic falls of some of these ministries. And it highlights a tendency, whether you're a ministry leader or not, it highlights a tendency among us for people to seek their own prominence and to seek their own success or else to attach themselves to those that they think have it. To become devoted to other earthly leaders more than they are devoted to Christ. And it's a warning that we as leaders and followers must beware of this tendency and we must work to keep our hearts devoted to Christ alone and his word alone. That's what John the Baptist is going to teach his disciples. So in verse 27, he answers them. This is a teaching moment for them. And he answers, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from above. Translation. Guys, anything you have seen me accomplish in this world has been given to me by the Lord. This is not my ministry. And with that, John quickly makes clear he is not bothered by Jesus' rise in influence and his own decline. You see, the rise of Jesus is not so, so big of a deal for most people. It's the decline of themselves. And John says, I'm not bothered by that. In fact, this decline in influence and Jesus' rise in influence was expected by John from the beginning. That was the whole point. And John clearly is embracing his subordinate role to Jesus. His disciples 
would have recognized uh, John's testimony about Christ, but maybe they forgot the part where John says, I'm not worthy even to untie his sandal. I'm not even worthy to wash his feet. Maybe they missed that part. John is embracing his subordinate role, and he is acknowledging God's supreme sovereignty to use him how and when he will. I was here for a moment. Now it's time to go. My ministry was given by God. And it's been fulfilled. So John's statement here, in the mindset that comes with it, has a good lesson for all who follow Christ and all who seek to be faithful in gospel ministry. God ordains the influence and the reach and the success of every person's ministry. It is not our place to compare ourselves to others or to compete with one another nor to despise or desire another person's situation. We live in the Bible Belt. There are churches all over the place. We are in competition with none of them. You say, what about the bad ones? We're not in competition. God will sort that out. We're here to be faithful, to proclaim the name of Christ. Our call is like John's, to be thankful and to be faithful in our ministry, whatever the capacity is. We are not here to crush the competition. We are here to be faithful proclaimers of Christ. Ministry competition, ministry envy, unfortunately is common, not just for pastors, but for church members. And from John, we're learning this kind of jealousy and envy has no place in a Christian's life or in a Christian ministry. One writer has rightly said, the measure of success for any ministry is not how many people follow the ministry, but how many people follow Christ. And so John continues in verse 28 by rebuking his disciples for missing the point of his ministry and for missing the point of Jesus' importance. He says, you yourselves bear me witness. You've heard this, that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He says that back in chapter 1. John reminds his disciples of the whole purpose of his ministry, to prepare the way for the Messiah and to introduce the Christ to his people. At no point in John's ministry did he invite the focus to himself. He faithfully pointed to Christ. And then in verse 29, John uses an illustration to help teach this point. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Implication, I'm not the bridegroom. He's describing his relationship to Jesus. The bride is God's people. The bridegroom is Jesus. And the obvious implication is, I'm not him. I'm not the star of the show. And John continues the illustration. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices at the bridegroom's voice. John likens himself to the friend of the bridegroom. Who's that? Think best man. What's his responsibility? His responsibility in that culture was often to make plans for the wedding and 
to bring the bride to the groom, in a way. John's purpose was not to be the center of attention. It was not to draw followers to himself. It was to introduce the Messiah to his people and then to get out of the way. And that really is the mission that all who follow Christ have been called to, isn't it? John did it before the arrival of Christ. We do it after. It is not our place to be the center of attention or to make a name for ourselves. And it's not even our place to make a name for this church in this community. Does that shock you? I've been thinking about this a lot. Church branding and marketing. Even church naming. What church do you? I go to Cornerstone Baptist Church. I go to such and such a church. I go to such and such a church. I'm not saying that we shouldn't all be here. I'm saying our mission is not to push one over the other. Our mission is to proclaim Christ. And if he does it without the use of Cornerstone, we still praise the Lord because he does it. We are simply servants. We are simply stewards. And we will do our best to be faithful, godly stewards, proclaimers of the word of God with whatever the Lord has given us. That's what we're called to do. The mission is to proclaim the name of Christ in all that we do, wherever we are. And that is for us as a church organization, and that is for every individual Christian. And the, 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 to proclaim Christ wherever we are, to whomever we can, and then to deflect the focus away from ourselves and onto him. And that is why John could say in all of this, therefore, this joy of mine is complete. Not because I have achieved success in the world's eyes as a ministry leader, but because I have pointed the world to Christ, and now it's my time to get out of the way. He rejoices in that. The supreme goal, the fulfillment of his ministry has been reached. The exaltation of Christ, the master. And so John summarizes his point in verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's the heart of the matter, isn't it? Beware of a ministry where Christ is not central. Beware of a ministry that is built on a personality. Look for a ministry where Christ is exalted. John was the herald. There was no need to stay now that the king has arrived. It was time to get out of the way. Now, that's the humility of the servant. What does all of that have to do with the new birth? Some of you might remember that the purpose of this text is to consider the new birth and what it means and what salvation means. What does all of this have to do with the new birth? Well, it makes it abundantly clear that this life, this world, our salvation are not ultimately about us, but are about Christ. That means if you would know what it means to be born again, 
if you would know salvation, if you would be right with God, you must be focused on Christ. True faith consists in Christ. Not in organizations or personalities or earthly success. What church you go to ultimately makes no difference in where you stand with God. Not that it isn't important. It is important. You ought to be in a church that preaches Christ from the Word of God. But just being in a place like that doesn't make you right with God. Giving your money to the church doesn't make you right with God. Being an all-around good person in comparison to your community doesn't make you right with God. Having a head full of deep theological knowledge does not make you right with God. Enjoying church on Sunday morning does not make you right with God. It is all about where you stand with Christ himself. Do you believe that he is the Savior? Do you believe that you are the sinner who needs to be saved by this Savior? And are you looking to him alone, by faith alone? That brings us to the next section of the text, verses 31 through 36. These verses show us the greatness of the Savior. This is where the new birth comes into view. New birth in Christ alone. And in these final verses of John, chapter 3, we see four characteristics that exalt the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ, the superiority of Christ, and they call us to look to Him alone for peace with God and eternal life. The greatness of the Savior seen in four ways. First of all, verse 31, we see His divine origin. John says, He who comes from above is above all. And again, at the end of the verse, he who comes from heaven is above all. John the Baptist didn't come from heaven. He's not the Son of God. He is not above all. The one who came from heaven, that's Jesus, he is above all. And that phrase, from above, is the same term that is used for born again earlier in the chapter. Born from above. It ties everything from salvation to eternal life, it, it ties it all to the authority of God Himself. In chapter 1, we saw it in, in, in earlier in chapter 3, Jesus is described as the one who descended from heaven. John wants to make it clear, Jesus is no ordinary man. John the Baptist was an ordinary man. A bit eccentric, but ordinary. Jesus was not an ordinary man. He is the God-man. He is God in human flesh. He is the real and physical manifestation of God Himself. And in contrast to that, John the Baptist describes himself and all other ministries. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. We're all from the earth. We're all limited by our earthiness. That is our sin-cursed humanity. 
But Jesus is not limited in that way. He is not a sinful human being. He is the perfect human being because he came from heaven. He is not limited as we are. He is, in fact, God himself. This is the divine origin of Jesus Christ. That is the testimony of John. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that lays the foundation for what we find next, not just his divine origin, but now his divine truth. Verses 32 and 33. Because he is God, because he has come from above where God the Father is, he is the very embodiment of truth, and everything he says is completely true. You say, of course it is. I believe that then what do you make of I am the way, the truth, and the life? No one comes to the Father but by me. Because there's a whole lot of people who seem to like Jesus and think they can get to heaven their own way. But Jesus, who is the very embodiment of truth from heaven, the creator, the one who not only enforces the rules but makes them, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's reliable. It's meaningful. And John continues in verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. That's Jesus. His teaching is reliable and superior because it is based on firsthand knowledge. Jesus didn't read a book about heaven and then go out and teach it. He came from heaven. He knows God the Father. His teaching is reliable and superior, unlike any other minister. He is the eternal God. He is the creator of all things. He has lived eternally with God the Father himself. Therefore, what he says is revelation and absolute truth. But then we read, yet no one receives his testimony. Here's another example of hyperbole. Some do receive his testimony, but there is vast unbelief in the world regarding the revealed truth of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, yet no one knows what is true. Well, Jesus is the very embodiment of truth, and yet no one knows who he is. No, he says, no one receives his testimony. What we know of Jesus and what he has taught has all the qualifications of truth, and yet it is still rejected by many. Why? Well, because it just doesn't line up with the science. No, that's not Scripture's testimony of it. Why? because of the hardness of man's heart. That's the way it has been from the beginning. And we saw that in the last passage as well. The truth is available, but the hard heart will not acknowledge it. That is a description of all people in their natural state apart from the grace of Christ. Now in verse 33, after establishing the rule, we find the exception to the rule. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. There are some, as we know, who do, not, who, who do believe in Christ and receive his testimony. And John says these believers receive the truth that Jesus has taught about himself, and in doing so, they set their seal to the truth of God. That is, they testify they certify, they confirm, they prove the truth 
of God. They demonstrate it to the world. Now, understand, it is not our affirmation of the truth that makes it true. That's not what John is saying here. But he is saying that those who have received the truth of God have demonstrated the testimony of Christ to be true. They have experienced it. They have demonstrated it. They, they confirm it with their own testimony. They testify of it. They proclaim it. What this teaches us is that all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ believe and follow His authoritative word, His truth. There is no inventing a Jesus of my own imagination. That's not truly God. There is no finding my own way to Jesus. Well, you have the church and I have. That's not what this is. Anyone who truly follows Christ follows the truth he has revealed. And anyone who does not acknowledge and submit to the authoritative truth of God's word is not a true believer. That is a foundational and essential point of Christianity. God has revealed his truth to man through the Son. That is the incarnate word. And he has revealed himself to man through the scriptures. That is the written word. And these must be believed and received. If you would know God, if you would know eternal life, you must believe the Lord Jesus Christ. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you must believe him and what he has taught. And honestly, you have every reason to believe. You have no reason not to, regardless of what this world is trying to tell you. And that leads us to verses 34 and 35. We've seen his divine origin. We've seen his divine truth. And now, naturally, we see his divine authority. His divine authority. Jesus' heavenly origin certifies that his revelation of God to man is true. But then additionally, that truth and revelation are authoritative because their source is God himself. Look at verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. In other words, Jesus not only is God, but he carries the authority of one sent by God to convey the message of God with the full convicting and, con and convincing power of the Spirit of God. Therefore, not only must we acknowledge his words as true, but we must submit to them as authoritative in our lives as well. Jesus came to reveal the character of God and the way of salvation to men. Our call is to obey and to respond. We must not try to invent our own way or to find our own way to God. We are not left to make this up as we go. God has instructed us in how to live, and he has shown it to us through his son and through his word. And so we must submit to what Christ has told us. It is authoritative and is sufficient to lead us in life and godliness. And then in verse 35, we see the driving force behind all of this. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. That is language of authority and sovereignty. 
Jesus carries the authority and the control and the sovereignty and the divine right of heaven itself. There is no religious leader in all history who can make that claim apart from Jesus. Because of the Father's love for His Son, He has given the Son, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, authority over every aspect of the universe, over all creation, and that includes you and me. You say, what does this have to do with the new birth? Get to it already, will you? If you want to see the new birth, you have to know the Savior. Jesus is not your co-pilot. Jesus is not your buddy who has come along to make your life easier in this world. Jesus is not a genie in a lamp who offers you infinite wishes whenever you rub the lamp and ask. Jesus is the sovereign God of heaven, the creator of the ends of the earth. He made you, he puts you in this situation where you are right now. He governs every moment of your life and you belong to him. And friends, that's very bad news if the rest of the Bible is correct, if you stand in your natural state, because you belong to him, and you answer to him, and you are a sinner, and he will not let sin into his heaven. But here's the good news. He is also a great Savior. And Christ has absorbed the wrath of God on himself. So that if you will put your faith in him and follow him and submit to him, you will not have to bear the wrath of God as a sinner cast out forever, but you will be under the blood of Christ. You will be saved. In order to know the new birth, you have to know who the Savior is. And this is no ordinary man. And this is no mere figment of human imagination. This is the sovereign God. And where you stand with him is the fundamental need of your life. That is the fundamental question. More important than anything else. And that brings us to verse 36, where we see finally his divine invitation. We've seen his origin, his truth, his authority, and now we have an invitation. This is the culmination of everything we have seen so far, not just in this passage, but in all of chapter 3 and in all of Scripture. This is the point of decision that God's Word brings us to. Jesus is the divine, sovereign creator, the sustainer, and the ruler over all things. What does this mean for you? What are you going to do? with what you have learned. Verse 36 tells us, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. As we've seen before, eternal life is not just a life that never ends, but it is a quality of life that belongs to God's people even here, right now, in this present life. It is the condition or the state of enjoying a right relationship with God, of being at peace with God 
through Jesus Christ. It is that state of being his own redeemed, justified, and righteous children. Get this. God is a magnificent, great, sovereign God, and we are magnificent, great sinners. Sin is devastating, but God is a Savior. And when there was an infinite chasm between us and holy God because of our sin, God made a way to bridge that gap. You cannot bridge that gap. But Christ did. And now we are called to believe in Him and follow Him. But based on all that we have seen so far about who Christ is and the authority and the truth that He carries, we need to understand that accepting this invitation and believing in Him involves several things. First of all, it involves acknowledging the facts of who He is, that He is the sovereign God and Lord of all, that He is the only Savior of sinful men. Do you believe that today? Do you acknowledge that? That's where you start. Secondly, it involves accepting those facts as true and embracing them for yourself. I don't just acknowledge that it's true. I orient my life around the truth of those facts. I am not going to seek salvation anywhere else. And being right with God is the primary preoccupation of my life. Number three, it involves submitting to his ultimate authority and lordship. I'm not going to just pray a prayer as if it's a magical formula. And then voila, I'm saved forever. I am going to repent and I am going to turn and I am going to follow hard after Christ as my Lord and master. What he says, I will do. Where he sends, I will go. And number four, forsaking self and following him wholeheartedly. Saving faith, you see, is just the beginning of what God is wanting to do in your life. This is not just about getting out of hell and avoiding fire. This is about being reconciled to God. Do you believe you can be reconciled to God? Do you believe he wants to reconcile with you? What more can he say? And to you, he has said, his invitation is a life-transforming call. No, we're not perfect. We make mistakes. Christians, we sin, right? We're not perfect because we haven't seen glory yet. But we are declared righteous and we are accepted in Christ. And the formation of Christ-like character in us has begun. And it is something that he will continue to to perform and, and, and develop in our lives, throughout our lives, through the work of the Holy Spirit. But what we need to understand here is that Jesus' divine invitation is not just an acknowledgement of facts about Him. That's where it starts. But it is a call to follow and to be transformed by Him. It is a whole life devotion to Him. That's why I said 
you need to understand just being in church isn't what makes you a Christian. Just going through the motions is not what makes you a Christian. It is that life transformation, that wholehearted devotion to following Christ, to knowing Him, to loving Him, and to to devoting your life to Him. Imperfect at times, yes, but progressing by God's grace. But then in contrast to that, verse 36 closes this passage with a warning. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And by the way, it's important to note here that the word obey in this sentence is parallel with the word believe in the previous sentence. And it reminds us that belief demands action. It demands obedience. And I know that for much of the professing Christian community, I just cut myself off as a legalist, but it's all over the New Testament. True faith in God will direct the way you live. This is a solemn warning to all who remain in their sin Whoever does not obey the Son does not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the language of a judgment that has already been pronounced. The sentence has already been handed down. The judgment is the wrath of God. And what is the wrath of God? That is the settled condemnation of God to an eternity separated from God and receiving the just punishment for our sin. That is where everybody sits apart from Christ. As eternal life is the present condition of all who believe, eternal damnation is the present condition of all who don't. If you want to know new birth, You have to know who the Savior is. And this Jesus is nowhere presented in the Bible as just a calm, sweet, um, accommodating Savior. He is also presented as the judge. And when he returns, he will mete out severe, devastating judgment on all who are not in him. And he will take his own to be with himself forever. So this text may not seem like it at first, but this text is a call to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And it comes with the urgency. If you don't, you will die in your sin. Why would you do that when the sovereign God of heaven has provided a more than sufficient way to be saved. What we find in this text is the final gospel sermon of John the Baptist given to us. I should have worn camel's hair and brought a table of locusts and wild honey because this is John preaching to you. And it outlines the way of salvation for all who will believe. You do not have to remain in your sin. You do not have to be in your lost state, condemned under heaven. 
You can be saved through Jesus Christ alone by repenting of your sin and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you haven't done that, let's talk. Or find somebody here that you want to talk to about how to know Christ as your Savior and not as your judge. And Christians, as we seek to walk with Christ and faithfully fulfill His mission in the world, we need to understand that we are not presenting to the world a Savior who will make your life great and has all these wonderful, amazing plans for you in this world. The gospel message is not about making all your troubles go away. In fact, when Jesus calls people to follow him, he often calls them to what? Count the cost and take up their cross. You follow Jesus today, it could kill you. But your life in this world is not what ultimately matters. Where you stand with God is what ultimately matters. And Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill only the body and after that can't do anything else to you. Who do you fear? The one who you give an account to who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Don't fall into his hands of judgment. Fall into his hands of mercy. And there you will be kept forever. And no one, not even the ones who can kill the body, can pluck you from his hands. That's eternal security. That is assurance of salvation. Christians, that's the Jesus that we proclaim to the world. Don't worry about your name. Don't worry about your kingdom or your empire. Proclaim Christ and get out of the way. That's the lesson of John the Baptist to the followers of Christ. One writer sums it up very well this way. In this way, John the Baptist clearly declared the sovereignty and supremacy of Jesus Christ, emphasizing that he alone is able to save sinful men from the consequences of their disobedience. And what John proclaimed with his lips, he exemplified with his life, actively promoting Jesus' ministry even at the expense of his own. Thus, the weight of John's witness can still be felt today as a warning to unbelievers that they must repent and follow Christ and as an example to believers that they should seek the Savior's glory rather than their own. That's what we're about. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together.